The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. And now, with Patricia Raskin Positive Living, here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living, right here on VoiceAmerica.com, America's Voice. We have a great guest on today. My guest is Andrew J. Sherman, who's a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Jones Day and a top-rated adjunct professor in the MBA and executive MBA programs at the University of Maryland and at Georgetown University Law School. He's been featured and quoted in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, New York Times, and many others. And his approach, his brand-new book, is Harvesting Intangible Assets. Uncover Hidden Revenue in Your Company's Intellectual Property. And this topic of levering intellectual assets was a cover story for Inc. Magazine. Welcome, Andrew. Oh, it's great to be back. Thank you so much for having me, and I uh, hope everybody's got their week off to a great start on this uh, wonderful Monday afternoon. Right. Well, absolutely. And I think in order to start it even better, we should talk about what you mean by uncovering that hidden revenue and harvesting intangible assets. I mean, finding things we may not know we already have. So what do you mean? Sure. A couple of components to it. Um, and, and we're also related to how people can do this uh, on a personal level, not just at the corporate or uh, small business entrepreneurial level. Uh, but, you know, if you look at our history as a country, we began as an agrarian society. We evolved from an agrarian society to an industrial society. We went from there to an information-based and social media-based society. But in many ways, the premise of the book says we are still very much an agrarian society. And our new crop is the crop of knowledge, the crop of relationships, the crop of channels, the crop of know-how and that we need to treat those intangible assets much in the same ways our agrarian ancestors and our current agrarians uh, treat their crops on a farm. And so that's the premise of the book, and then, you know, it kind of uh, unpeels un- from there in terms of how to go about living your life as an intellectual capital agrarian. Mm. So when you say that, you talk about... Um, Gathering intelligence, sounds like a CIA effort here, on direct, indirect, and potential competitors. What do you mean? Competitive analysis is certainly one intangible asset. I mean, the smarter you are about what's going on in your marketplace or what's going on in your uh, ecosystem, the more competitive you can be at both the corporate level but even at the individual level. Um, So I think, you know, since knowledge is the new crop that we need to be farming, knowledge about yourself, your own strengths and weaknesses, knowledge is about the dynamics of your marketplace, knowledge is about the moves being made by your competitors. 
are all part of that intangible asset. Um, you know, I think if we look at our own career paths, we look at where we want to be in our career paths, I mean, it's usually the person, you know, you'll hear somebody make reference, oh, you know, Bill, he's so smart, he keeps tabs on all of our competitors, he really knows our channel partners, he really is intimate with our customers. I mean, it's, it's those folks that bring that extra intangible asset to the table that, that tend to go further in their careers. Mm, okay. Now, you talk about keeping one step ahead of a constantly changing landscape. How do you do that? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, we are unfortunately, are you familiar, uh, I'm sure some of your, you and your listeners are familiar with uh, the, the, the principle of Moore's Law. Uh, Gordon Moore was one of the founders of Intel, and Moore's Law said that um, every 18 months, the technology that we all use will uh, be twice as fast and be at half the cost. Uh, and I think that Moore's Law, which was articulated back in the 70s or 80s, has really held true. I mean, all of us with our PDAs and our computing power, you know, it seems to be getting faster and cheaper as we go. What that has yielded is a rapidly evolving economy. And in that rapidly evolving economy, we, we can't afford to become stagnant. We have to continue moving, listening, growing, learning, uh, being open to new ideas, both, again, as people as well as as business owners, in order to, to stay one step ahead. Hmm. How do you relate that to entrepreneurs or solopreneurs people in their own business, do they need to have a niche in order to have them kind of stay ahead of the curve? Exactly, and understand what that niche really is. What I have found in working with thousands of entrepreneurs over the last 30 years is that some companies think they have a niche, but their niche is not what the customer perceives to be the niche. And so that gap between how your customers perceive you and how you perceive yourself needs to be closed in business because you may be putting resources into the own into the wrong efforts. You may be thinking that customers are coming to you for one reason, and actually, if you can get them to speak honestly, they're coming to you for quite a different reason. Um, these are the kinds of things that small companies need to do. And look, if a big company misjudges its market by by you know a centimeter or two, it gets caught up in the wash and nobody even notices. Mm-hmm. But when a small company misjudges its market or its customer loyalty or new product development uh, by a centimeter or two, uh, that can, that can, they can really feel that pain. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, what do you say, based on your book, again, Intangible Assets and Uncovering Hidden Revenues, what do you say to folks who are feeling the recession so that I've had people say to me, I'm working harder than I ever have before, just to stay where I was before. Exactly. And, and, and the book is very recession-friendly in that regard. And the reason is as follows. You know, if you think about, you know, trying to build your business and doing research and development for the development, for the rollout of new products or services, I mean, that can be very time-consuming. The market is not great right now for raising new capital. The premise of the book is that many of the assets you need to drive your company's growth are sitting right below your nose. Um, you know, when Inc. Magazine did the cover story on, on me and what I do and how I do it, the reporter, Leigh Buchanan, referred to me as spending a day with Andrew is like lifting up all of the sofa cushions in your home and, 
and finding valuable coins. And I thought that was, you know, obviously, hopefully it was a compliment, uh, but, but I thought it was beautifully written in that it's a reminder to your question that some of these assets we need to grow our businesses are right under our rear ends in that metaphorical sofa cushion. We just have to get up uh, and, and lift up the cushion, and we don't have to spend new resources or new dollars or new time on uh, creating new ones in a recessionary economy. Give us an example of Jeff doing that, of finding those hidden coins under your sofa. What are some things you've seen that are done that don't necessarily cost a lot in dollars? Well, a couple of good, that's a very good question, a couple of good examples. Uh, your customer lists, your databases, your training programs, your processes and, and, and systems and know-how. Um, another thing you can do is if you kind of do a mini inventory of what intangible assets you may have, and you find that for some reason, which would be very rare, you don't have a lot of them, then do a, a mini inventory of something, of a resource nearby. Uh, you know, we all as taxpayers um, are helping to fund the billions and billions of dollars of research and development that takes place by our nation's universities, and yet the percentage of dollars raised to royalty income for the average major university is less than 1%. So it's clear that even if a local small company doesn't have the time or does, or does take the time to, um, to see what assets they have, even if they can't find any, there's probably some assets right down the road at a larger company or R&D firm or whatever it may be. Um, another example is where a company has a few patents. They're using the patents in their core industry, uh, which is to be expect expected, but there might be applications of the patents outside their core industry. They don't have time to pursue those other industries, but they might be able to license them to uh, other companies. So this strategy, to wrap up, sorry to be so long-winded there, but this strategy is both licensing outbound and also licensing inbound. Yeah, it's really thinking outside the box, I mean, is what it is. Very much so, but thinking outside the box in, a, in a, a truly strategic way and recognizing that there are things that you have built that drive shareholder value or are potential of, uh, have the potential of driving shareholder value, but, but you have to expend the effort to get up off the sofa and look under the cushion, and you also have to have the skill set to distinguish between a valuable gold coin and, uh, you know, a moldy Cheerio. You know, Andrew, obviously you need strategy, you need skill, but how much of this is also relationship between the customer and the client? How much of it is the communication and relationship? Well, a fair bit of it. Um, I mean, you know, I think we, when, we when, when, when recessionary times hit, we sometimes take our, our customers for granted when we should be going out of our way to make sure that we can hold on to them. And what your customers say about you, what they tell others in this new Web 2.0 driven world, uh, they have so many more vehicles than they've ever had before to communicate their opinions uh, about you, uh, what they um, are willing to buy from you that you may not know about unless you ask them. You know, um, I mean, Patricia, you have, you know, millions of listeners around the country and they are loyal to your show, and they 
are probably willing to do more with you or buy more from you. I think if you came out with a line of auto parts, they would push back and say, well, that's not, that's not part of the loyal and intimate relationship we have with Patricia. But if you came out with a line of, you know, business training videos that they might be interested in. So it's about defining the scope of that relationship and understanding what the customer might be open to doing. And of course, if the most expensive cost is getting new customers and you're not doing more business with existing customers, then you're not harvesting your intangible assets. Yeah, that's something I have found that, that I, I was told this a long time ago, and I'll tell you, it's just as important, I find in my work, to really pay attention to my existing customers than just to be going after new ones. Because well, they're my And that's business. what you're, you know, you've worked all these years to establish a brand and to not protect and preserve the brand, but look for also for ways to leverage the brand. Um, that seems awfully silly when the brand exists and, and you own it and you have every right and ability to, to leverage it. Right, right. So, but it's important to really pay attention to the existing customers you have and give them extra added benefits now and then. That's what I find. Yeah, and also, you know, have them become your best um, evangelists. You know, yeah. Steve Jobs, may he rest in peace, you know, one of the, one of the saying, you know, one of the seven rules of, of innovation that Steve believed in the strongest was creating customers who were your appointed evangelists. And uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom there. Um, and, you know, trying to turn customers into evangelists uh, will turn you into the next Apple, I'm sure. In your book, you talk about intrapreneurship. What is intrapreneurship? And explain that and how that helps. Uh, great question. Uh, intrapreneurship is when a larger company or even a mid-sized company tries to apply principles of entrepreneurship to their culture, to their compensation, to the way that they innovate, okay? So if you've got someone who is uh, a creative mind inside the division of a bigger division of an even bigger division of a company, how do you motivate that person to think like an intrapreneur, to think with an entrepreneurial mindset inside the large company? And some companies like IBM and 3M and others have gotten very good at this. And what they do is they create structures and reward systems and incentives uh, to allow people to be more intrapreneurial. You know, they have to draft business plans like entrepreneurs do. They have to raise internal resources like entrepreneurs do. And they may have to leave their uh, the comfort of their paycheck and benefits like entrepreneurs do. But you're trying to create the most entrepreneurial environment that you can inside a larger company and make them compete for resources internally much the same way that entrepreneurs have to compete for resources every day in their day-to-day lives. Mm. One of the things in your book that I really like is you have a chart which is called Types of Intangible Assets and Intellectual Property. So many times we don't know what the intangibles are. So tangible assets are things like cash and credit lines and real estate. Cultural assets are things like mission and values, which is so important, and decision-making systems. Relationship assets are more like your reputation, your relationships with customers and vendors and investors, 
your customer relationship management systems and strategies. And your human assets are more your commitment, your motivation, your skill, your attitude. This is very interesting. And then you also talk about intellectual property and practice and routine assets, which is your know-how. How does all this tie together? Well, you know, if you think about, again, all of these assets, think about it in the context of an M&A. You know, if, if I were buying a $10 million uh, Web 2.0 social media company, um, I'm not buying their desks and chairs and laptops and PDAs anymore. We don't, you know, we have very few companies, unfortunately, left that are making widgets or where you're buying inventory or, or depreciated machinery. I mean, we're, we're in a society where we're buying knowledge capital. We're buying uh, how we treat people. We're buying the culture that the company has created that we want to either uh, preserve or improve. Um, in the Washington, D.C. area where I'm based, where, you know, you may be buying into a government contractor that has 35 security, you know, fully security cleared uh, level one uh, government uh, clearances and, and what the company has done to keep those people on their payroll even when they're being recruited away from larger companies. So, you know, so much of what we buy and sell uh, in the M&A market is intangible in nature and yet we don't really have proper accounting for it. Uh, I'll tell you a story, Patricia, that's going to knock you off your chair, so, so hold on to your handles there. Um, we, I gave a speech uh, last week at George Washington University. An entrepreneur raised her hand, and she said, you know, let me, let me prove to you how right your book is with this one story. And she's got a rapidly growing IT services company, some great loyal customers, one of the local venture capitalists just delivered to her a term sheet to invest $3.5 million in her company. That's pretty impressive in this market. Mm. She got the advice from one of her business advisors to go to her local bank just to see what they might be willing to do uh, just in case she doesn't want to be diluted to the tune of the $3.5 million. Patricia, how much do you think the commitment letter from the bank was? I don't know. $75,000. How is it possible? I mean, I ask all of our listeners today to be pondering this question. How is it possible that the exact same company that qualifies for $3.5 million in venture capital only, only will fetch $75,000 from their local bank? Now, by the way, this is not one of those problems where the bank won't lend. The bank is perfectly willing to lend. But how could one company in the eyes of an equity provider be worth nearly $10 million and in the eyes of a debt provider only support $75,000 in a loan? So what do you and think that's the problem. You know, her company debt? is rich with oh, intangible assets, but, it's, but, but that's not the stuff that the banks lend against. But, but that, my question, Andrew, is what's the answer to that question? Why oh, boy. Chris, if I had the answer to that one, we probably wouldn't be on the phone. I'd be on my, my major yacht right now. Um, yeah. People are working on the solution. Um, I mentioned the book, The Work of Dr. Baruch Lev at NYU, uh, who's a finance and accounting professor, trying to get the accounting profession to be more sensitive to intangible assets 
when providing loans and looking at financial statements. I've been trying to speak loudly to the legal community about the need to recognize these assets in a more tangible way. Uh, appearances like today on your radio show, hopefully people will think about it. But we've got to change the system that creates that kind of disparity um, when you know two sources of capital look at the exact same company and arrive at such different results as to risk and valuation and, and, and those types of very important variables. And I think, you know, without getting too political here, I think that that's part of what's the problem in, in our economy right now, is this disparity between not recognizing the value of the assets that are driving the success of so many companies. Well, and that then the problem becomes that the, the average person or the entrepreneur can't get the assets they need. Right. And, and then they can't create the jobs that we need as a society and the tax revenues that we need in Congress, and the problem just builds on itself. But what nobody's talking about is this problem. I mean, come on. If I, you know, if, 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 if I only enable you to, to play a game with one-tenth of what you need to win, how will you possibly win games? How will we turn this economy around if 90% of our assets are intangible and banks and others don't know how to interact with those assets, we'll, we'll, we'll never turn the economy around. Now, I refuse to believe this great country can't figure it out, but yeah. I'm concerned. Yeah, that's been a long-standing problem, though, I think, for a while now. It really has. Now, I want to ask you about trademarks and about patents and how important that is in all of this. Well, it's very important. I mean, uh, patent law goes back to our U.S. Constitution, the Founding Fathers thought that it was very important to have intangible assets or they wouldn't have been made it Article 1, Section 8. But what many people who, who initially hear about my new book will say is, oh, well, you know, intangible assets, that's patents, right? And I'll say, well, patents is one type of intangible asset, but there's certainly dozens and dozens of other, of other types. You know, it's not just patents. Other things can drive value. Um, other things can drive value for a company other than just those buckets of assets that intellectual property laws uh, formally protect. And so, you know, it's important to sort of think beyond the traditional intellectual property boxes, but certainly if you can protect your brand through trademark law, if you can protect your te technology through patent law, that just makes it even more valuable uh, but if it can't be protected by patent law, perhaps it can be protected by trade secret law. And as we know from Coca-Cola and KFC and other companies that have had the benefit of protecting uh, trade secrets over the long term, those, those assets can still be very, very valuable. And as far as brands go, I mean, my gosh, we are, we are in a very, very brand-driven society, you know, a mere 10 years ago. Uh, you know, www.amazon.com was an unknown URL in, uh, among the web uh, uh, with many, many other URLs that were unknown. And now it's probably one of the most valuable Internet assets out there. Mm. You know, and same thing with Google and, and others. So what is your advice to the business person and probably the small business person who's trying to make a go of it and is discouraged during this economy in terms of finding their intangible assets? Well, I think the message to take away from, if you've been listening to the show, is to really do 
you know, some self-reflection. Pull yourself out of the fire hose of day-to-day life and see if you can't, you know, look at uh, or, or get an advisor to help you look at the strategic essence of your company, look at where those intangible assets may be, hire a consultant to help you if, if, if you need one, but make sure that you aren't spending the rest of your life sitting on that proverbial coin under the sofa cushion that could help you and your family and your employees and their families uh, all you know, drive more revenues and, and, and live a more productive life. I, the reason I chose the agrarian um, theme to the book is that like agriculture, these assets will not last forever. Eventually they will rot on the proverbial vine. And so if we don't harvest them on a timely basis, they will spoil and they will be of no use in the marketplace. And that's part of the, you know, the message I want to get across to, to your listeners. How important is marketing? Well, you know, if no one knows about it, then it's going to be very hard to sell it. So I would say that it's a pretty critical piece. The beauty of marketing in, in today's society is that you can market now via social media tools a lot more effectively than you used to through, you know, magazine or TV or newspaper advertising. Um, you know, we have a lot more tools available to us uh, than we ever did before, and so I would say marketing is critical, but marketing does not have to be as expensive as it used to be. All right, we've got a couple minutes to close. So uh, what, what would you like to leave our listeners with and tell them how they can get the book, please? Well, the book uh, is available on Amazon um, as well as on the Amicom uh, Books book site, but probably the best way to get it is on Amazon. There's already 65 or, or so customer reviews posted, so if you like the book, please, please write something up, uh, but read what others have said about the book. Um, and, you know, really just help spread the word. This this particular book is not about you know earning author royalties for me. This is a, this is a movement. It's it's you know to me this is my entrepreneurial version of Occupy Wall Street. Uh, it's not in the form of a protest. It's just trying to get this country's economy and the global economy kickstarted by us making better use of the intangible assets that we already own and that already exist. Um, uh, you know, to, to, to harvest them more effectively to create jobs, to create opportunity, to create new revenues. All right. My guest has been Andrew J. Sherman. His book is Harvesting Intangible Assets, Uncover Hidden Revenue in Your Company's Intellectual Property. And how do people find this on the web? Um, again, it's, uh, it's, uh, the book is available on Amazon.com, or if you're looking for information on me, uh, I'm at uh, the website jonesday.com. Okay. Thank you so much for being on the program, Andrew. Thank you, Patricia. It's always a pleasure, and I, I can't wait to uh, appear again sometime soon. All right. Stay on the line for a minute. Okay, folks, just want to remind you that if you'd like to get a copy of my newsletter, which is Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com, write to me, and I will certainly send that to you. And again, my guest has been Andrew J. Sherman, author of Harvesting Intangible Assets. All right, remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin for Patricia Raskin Positive Living, right here on Voice America, America's Voice. See you next week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.